The babysitter's here. Come on downstairs. But Mim and playing Wild Wild West. I have to leave soon, Eric. But Mim and Artemis Cloud Frog still have to do our love scene with Sam and Hayek. Come down as soon as you're done. Well, I'm a badass cowboy living in the cowboy days. Wiggy, wiggy, scratch, yo, yo, bang, bang. Me and Artemis Cloud Frog go save Sam and Hayek from the big metal spider. Wiggy, 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 wiggy. Wicked wild, wild, wicked wild, wicked wicked wild, wild west. Jim West, desperado, rough rider. No, you don't want nada. None of this six gunning this, brother running this buffalo soldier. Look, it's like I told you, any damsel that's in distress, be out of that dress when she meet Jim West. Roughnecks. Welcome everybody to Fear and Loathing in Cinema podcast. I'm Brian Kluger. We have a great. New episode, a fresh episode, coming out from the west part of town, a western this time from 1999. Before we let you know on that, I have two hosts with the most, the two the, the two gentlemen who I want to go horseback riding and jump onto a mechanical spider in the desert with Preston Barta and Dan Moran. How are y'all doing today? Doing good. Doing good. He doing good. Yes, of course, we're talking about the 1999 massive blockbuster movie, The Wild Wild West. <laughs> oh, shit, I got that wrong. Excuse me. What the, what the Wild Wild West movie? There you go. <laughs> that, that felt more natural. That felt more natural. Of course, the movie starring Will Smith, Kevin Klein, Kenneth Branagh, Selma Hayek, by Ling and Ted Levine. Oh my goodness. Buffalo Bill himself. It's crazy. Directed by the one, the only, you know him from Men in Black, but Barry Sonnenfeld, written by a whole mess of people, including people who wrote Short Circuit and Tremors, <laughs> uh, and produced by John Peters. We're going to get to that in a second. And music by Elmer Bernstein, the legend. Um, this movie currently, as we talk about it at the moment, is sitting at a ripe, a a ripe, what is it, 13% on Rotten Tomatoes? 16. 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it won Razzie Awards. It was nominated for almost every Razzie Award. Uh, and we're here on Fear and Loathing in Cinema to discuss if it is warranted, if it should somehow hold up some 24 years later, uh, or is it justified to be as bad as it was back then? Um, Wild Wild West is, I guess, um, basically, if you don't remember about, um, <laughs> basically right when president Lincoln was president of the United States, you know, abolished slavery and uh, basically this mad maniacal genius scientist, uh, wants, yeah. Uh, wants to, um, wants to the, the South to have won. So he tries to take over the world by one mechanical spider at a time. Uh, and it's up to these two, uh, detectives or, um, you know, secret service people um to protect the president and stop this wild crazy thing in the in the west so that's basically the gist of it but 
Um, oh my God, we're going to get into this Wild Wild West movie. So first off, let's start with Dan. Movie came out in 1999. I was 17 or 18 years old. Um, I, I guess I was a senior in high school. Uh, and I remember the big hoopla about this movie because, you know, this is like the stardom, the starting rise of Will Smith. And he was doing one blockbuster after another. And I remember the trailer to this and I was like excited to see it. And then I remember seeing it in the theater and just like, wow, this movie kind of missed the mark. And I guess I was looking for something else. Maybe I was looking like pre when every movie was trying to go into darkness. Maybe I was looking for something more like that. But what I got like men in black, which is actually a legitimate good movie. Correct. Correct. This more, this more hit on a very Looney Tunes spot. Like the action sequences, everything is basically a Looney Tunes cartoon, which may or may not still hold up. We'll get to the, we'll get to that. But Dan, what did you first see this? What was your expectation? And then we'll move this on was, to Preston. Yeah. Yeah. This this was the height of uh I guess like the start of movie nerddom for me because it was Star Wars episode one and all the hype behind that movie coming out. You've got the well, this was this was the height of Will Smith. I don't care what anyone says. This was when Will Smith coming off Independence Day, coming off his stuff, like he, I in my opinion, his star was never higher than now because this was mtv generation this was he's hosting trl he's got a music video he's anything he wanted to get made could get made case in point this movie (laughs) but i mean this was a thing where he just any idea he popped in his head any script he wanted to make it was greenlit someone gave 150 million dollars for it he could get anyone he wanted to be in the movie and here it is. And I remember like Star Wars. I was so excited to go see episode one. I went and saw it at that time. I thought it was the greatest movie I'd ever seen in my entire life. Um, that's waned quite a bit. But I remember the summer, the spring and summer leading up to this movie come out, seeing that trailer and being like, this movie is going to change my life. Like a mechanical spider, Will Smith, the soundtrack. Every day I'd get home from school and turn on TRL. And this was like a top 10 song. Like, this movie, I don't, I don't think we can talk about how impactful the movie was without talking about the fact it was a blitz. It was almost, I feel like this movie was as big of a blitz, ad wise and in my culture as Godzilla, mm-hmm. uh, the year before Star Wars and Wild Wild West. Like these movies were everywhere. everywhere. They were ever- so pumped. They were everywhere, and it's interesting. You know, you mentioned that. You know. Will Smith at the top of his game. Will Smith and Kevin Klein were last minute decisions because they tried to get people like Tom Cruise and Mel Gibson to star Jim West, even George Clooney into the role and everybody dropped out because of creative differences when they ended on this and like it worked in their favor, I think, you know, in the end. Uh, But it's interesting to see how, how that, because Barry Sonnenfeld top of his game at the time and, uh, yo, it's crazy. Preston, what do, what do you remember? What do you remember? Because how old were you? I was nine. So, yeah, oh. I like Dan thought every blockbuster movie was like it. It could be the messiest, worst movie as a 30 year old looking at it. But it was the best movie ever as a nine year old. So and the only th- 
what really contributed to that is the happy meal phase like just going to because i think it was burger king like sold the glasses for that will smith has in this movie and so that just completely solidified the excitement for it and also loving it so uh yeah i i it was a very special time uh because yeah going to independence day godzilla star wars like 1999 was is recognized as one of the greatest movie years of all time because i think even will smith passed the matrix to do this movie so in the matrix came out in 99 and so that just goes to show you like how many great movies were coming out at the time and then it's just funny because i wasn't on this like critic wave yet as a nine-year-old but just (laughs) i i wasn't like paying attention to film criticism it wasn't on my radar at all so i just i didn't pay attention so much to the conversations that people were having about oh man that movie was bad like if you go and look at the rotten tomatoes log line it says like laugh free and bombastic and that just wasn't part of my language yet, I guess. And so I just thought everything was great. And I did at the time think that this movie is great. And that's probably why I still have tremendous love for it uh, today. Um, yes, I recognize how problematic it is. And uh, it's only my love for it has like grown in for it in a different way, because I know we're going to get to talking about this Kevin Smith story and John Peters being a producer and his creative involvement in it, which makes it even funnier to me and to just see all these little details in it that he wanted to see come to fruition uh, makes the movie more charming to me <laughs> in, in a way. Um, so uh, yeah, I just have a complete love for it uh, now. And even then as a nine-year-old. It's, it's crazy because you know, you have Barry Sonnenfeld, you have Will Smith, and Barry Sonnenfeld's the director who's usually in charge of a movie. Um, and then you have Will Smith, who nowadays is more, more or less on a set, probably like Tom Cruise, where, you know, maybe Will Smith is running the show. Tom Cruise is definitely running the show. Um, but back then, they weren't. And John Peters, who is a producer... And, you know, if you saw Licorice Pizza, Bradley Cooper played him, you know, he was married to Barbara Streisand. He was Barbara Streisand's hairdresser, became, became a producer. He was a producer credit only on the Batman movies and Rain Man. And uh, it seems that all the crazy stories of John Peters, because out of anybody in Hollywood, John Peters, more modern day, has probably some of the most insane Hollywood stories about himself. But it seems like John Peters was in charge of this production. Like, I think he finally got to, you know, the parents in Hollywood said, John, go crazy. There's we're not going to give you any notes. And we got Wild Wild West. Like, do you all feel (laughs) like that was the case? Yeah, it's it's really funny to hear even beyond the giant mechanical steam spider at the very end, which is something that he wanted to be part of Kevin Smith's Superman movie. Um, But like all these little things that he wanted to happen too, with uh, like it needed to have a bomber plane or something like that. And so many people had to be like 
John, like that did not exist at that time. And so like all these and like the alternate routes that they took to still include it, like he's like, oh, horses are boring. Put motorcycles in there. And then they're like, no, John, motorcycles weren't around and at that time. And, and then they worked in the, the motorized bike, uh, gas powered bike that's in it. And so it it like found a way in there and that's what's humorous to me. Um, and so I, I, I enjoy all those little details, despite how much people probably suffered uh, during this production. Cause I know Kevin Klein was like pissed uh, that Will Smith was getting all the funny lines. And then they ultimately turned it into like this uh, constantly trying to one up each other, which made it different than the dynamic that is in men in black between Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones of Kevin Conn essentially playing the straight man. So uh, yeah, there's just like all these little things and all these little stories that make it more fun and interesting to me. Yeah, because it was, you know, there's like four or five writers and, you know, a lot of these writers came from the movie Short Circuit or Tremors. <laughs> and uh, it's like that. I guess you had to hire that many writers to go with John Peters, you know, vision, even though he's a producer. he The producer is supposed to, like, get whatever the director and studio wants to happen. But, I mean, John Peters is like, I this is what I want. And so, you know, let let let's start. You know, from that that first that first scene that like that first kind of scene when you meet uh, Will Smith, kind of in a bathtub, and you um, it's in a water tower. Yeah, in, in, in a in a, in a big water tower bathtub. You know, because yes. like you know, the the very first scene is you see a guy, he's running in a in a field, and um, mm. you see his head get cut off by like this disc and you're just like, wow, okay, this is supposed to be the West. This looks like very sci-fi technology. Um, and then you cut to Will Smith naked with a girl in the water tower and, you know, something like that. And I just think like those first two things, even though this movie's PG 13, right? Yeah. Those are pretty hardcore things, you know, a beheading and a sex scene. Basically. I, I think I remember my mom and dad getting nervous with me while watching it because I, I think when they saw that opening scene because it even today I think that that saw sequence of chopping off the head is actually pretty terrifying it's almost like the same level as the counselor with Brad Pitt getting you know yeah um with that device and so it's interesting because you don't know because it's a terrifying concept to run around with a magnet on your head trying to figure out what you're going to do um and there's just like no it's a lost cause so like that whole sequence is like whoa you're you're thrown right into it and so i think that's that makes it a successful cold opening like even if it just didn't go downhill uh after that, like that opening is really well done and kind of scary. And then, yeah, leading into the water tower sequence and the woman is naked in it. I mean, you can't really see anything, but still like it's just like a sexy sequence. And yeah, I can just remember my mom being like, oh, my gosh, what are we doing? This is not in what Independence Day was like. But I guess Independence Day also showed a woman walking in a thong in a strip club. So I don't know. Um, but I I really remember uh, my family getting nervous about it. Well, what, what about you, Dan? What do you think about those two opening scenes? I can be honest, it's been forever since I'd seen this. So when I turned it on the other night and they happened, I was surprised. I was like, I don't remember this movie being this intense or scary. Like, I was like, this is a 
this is an intense action scene. Um, and, and I enjoyed it. And then I completely forgot there was even a sex scene. I wonder if that must have had to be in Will Smith's contract at that point. Like, I probably. Have, well, I yeah, have, because like when he falls out of the water tower, he's naked. And then they, that shot of him standing up, you do see his butt cheeks. You do kind of see almost, almost a, a ball sack. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's a weird opening to the movie, but, um, not at all the tone of the movie um it turns into like you guys said like slapstick like this movie starts off and i was like was this movie more intense i thought this was just like a romp with kevin klein and them like falling over bikes and there's a giant spider and then kenneth Branagh in a wheelchair like i thought this movie was goofy and when it opened up and i watched it the other night i was like oh maybe this movie's darker than i remember no Nope, it was just the beginning, like 10 minutes. It was like the beginning 10 minutes because as soon as Kevin Klein comes into the picture and you get after that, what, like that first fight scene when uh, Jim West, Will Smith's character, gets on Kevin Klein's train that's full of booby traps and contraptions, it is straight out. I'm, I'm expecting like the boing or yeah. sound effects of like the big hammer. Yes. Yo, that was it. Was you know what? Coming to it today, it was a breath of fresh air of how funny it was. And like, did you did y'all think? So being Will Smith as he is today, because you can't talk about Will Smith without talking about the Oscar slap. Being that the Oscars are like a week away, there's a couple moments in the movie where he like slaps somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he slaps a lot of people in this movie, right? It like, but like, 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 just like the once, and aren't you just like, uh, oh my god, what's what did did y'all think of that when that happened? Oh, of course, it's hard not to. <laughs> I thought of it when he passes away, you know, hopefully 30 years from now that it's in his Oscar reel, like <laughs> the footage because they'll show a clip Memorial from every reel. movie he was ever in, and that's I hope that's the one they pick from Wild Wild West and just ignore the fact that he slaps someone at the Oscars, just show right? The movies where he slaps somebody, <laughs> um, so. What do you think? Because going back and, you know, the the studio wanting Tom Cruise, but Tom Cruise turned it down to do Mission Impossible. Mel Gibson turned it down to do Maverick. Um, and then even their own TV movies, essentially, or t- uh, film adaptations of TV shows. Yeah. And let's take a quick time out. I know we can go back in time and litigate all this. Those were the two correct decisions for Mel Gibson and Tom Cruise. Because Mission Impossible is mm-hmm. what it is today because Tom Cruise is in it and he's an absolute psychopath. And Mel Gibson's <laughs> version of Maverick is also actually psychopath. obnoxiously entertaining. It's so good. It's, it's so it's good. So it, much, it is such a breath of fun that if they were in either of these movies and missed out on those two opportunities, I feel like it's not like a situation where everyone's like, oh, Will Smith passed on Neo. Will Smith didn't want to be in Django Unchained. Will Smith didn't want to do this. Like they all came to him first. It's not one of those like, oh, that would probably would have been better than the movie with your son and M. Night Shyamalan. But it's um one of those things where <laughs> Mel Gibson and Tom Cruise and their agents were were finally made the right decision. Mm. No, they they did. They did. And so with ending on Will Smith, with ending on Kevin Klein and them you know, even if they had behind the scenes trouble with scripts or writing or each other, what did you feel about their chemistry? Like, do you think that these two characters got like did well in the movie to serve its purpose? I'll say this, and I said it after, before the slap, 
and when King Richard came out. And I didn't think King Richard was that good of a movie, but um, what it did for me was I remember turning, my wife and I saw it, and I turned to her and I go, Will Smith, Will Smith is such a fucking movie star. And it is so nice to see him be a movie star and just completely own the screen, have chemistry with every person he looks at, like every extra, every nod, like he's just a magnetic force on screen. And Kevin Klein is so damn charming that mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like they were perfect together, regardless of the, 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 the quality of script or anything like that, them on screen together watching it. I was like, this is a, he's a movie star. Will Smith is a movie star. Cause he buys in to everything he does, no matter how outlandish that entire movie is, he buys into it. And, and that's something that I just respect the hell out of him for. And I enjoyed this movie a lot more than I thought I was going to. What about you, Preston? Oh, I'm right there with Dan. I think that they're just great together. They're, they have a really great sequence when they're like trying to get the breast fake breast to feel right and like that just kind of just really sets things off for their relationship together and how much fun their their banter back and forth uh it, it's it's just really charming um and I, I i couldn't have said it better than dan saying that will smith is just this magnetic force uh no pun intended with what happens in the film um <laughs> it's it's uh yeah they're just they're just great together i really enjoy it uh, and i wish i could have saw more more from uh them together uh and that so many people didn't hate this right right i think maybe at some point they will but yeah like just like the the fake boob scene and you see um uh, that actor Walsh, you know, who drives the train. Um, yeah, Coleman. Col- yes, he is perfect because, you know, he's not knowing, he doesn't know what's happening, but they're, Will Smith and Kevin Kleiner's like, feel these fake breasts, see if they're real enough. And, you know, he, the other guy's like, wait, are they real? actually doing it? And they they use words like, oh, this is so hard. You know, <laughs> and it's... Yes. Yeah, feel this, feel this tit. Oh, that's feel now. Feel my tit. Oh, I'm really hard right now, or something like that. <laughs> Mine's hard. That's it. It's, 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 it's funny. It's just yeah. really funny and real. It's that's the type of stuff where they can say whatever they want. And I know I'm sure a lot of it was on the page, but a lot of that just feels natural. Yeah. Between those two guys knowing each other's senses of humor and how to play off each other, and that's why I was surprised when you talked about like the behind the scenes stuff because on screen they are just dynamite together. They they are dynamite together. And, you know, another scene like that that uh, didn't feel as organic, but it was still great, was when Selma Hayek comes into the <laughs> screen and she's wearing uh, pajamas uh, on mm-hmm. the train and she turns around and, like, the little flap on her butt is down. So you see her ass and they are doing, like, kind of like the puns or getting, like, the Freudian slips in there with ass and... <laughs> All sorts of things, kind of like you know, it's a bit nipply in here from Christmas Vacation. I'm blousy, I'm yeah. browsing. They're seen in yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, their pun game is like Jungle Cruise level. It's 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 pretty <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. The, yeah, it's it's really funny back and forth, but it's just another thing. Like, were PG thirteen movies just more fun back <laughs> in the day? Because that that scene with her with her butt and even the opening sex scene and the feeling of the the boot the fake boobs. All of those would have been either cut or cut down drastically. 
yeah. um, in today's PG-13 world. So, I mean, that's another thing. Like, I, I, I liked it. It pushed the envelope a little bit. It it did. It did. Uh, but I, I like the addition to Salma Hayek. I liked how, you know, she... She's, she's nothing more than just a product in there, like, just to right. be curves and boobs and butt, and that's all she is. I mean, that She's even said that in response to the film over time, that that... There's nothing to. She's like a pretty sideline character, and she's just there to be eye candy for the two men. But those jokes are admittedly funny, and I, I can't help but, you know, sink into my third grade humor sometimes and just laugh at these things. And it, and it's funny because you know, in a normal movie, one of the guys would have ended up with her, but like yeah. how it works out, she just fools them constantly. And dumb and like, dumb and style, pretty it, much. It was dumb and dumber style. It was Mary Swanson. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you the, the what are you thinking? It's town is that way. Oh my goodness. That's exactly what happened in this movie. And it's so funny how that ended. Um, so now let's talk about like the shining force of this movie, the true spotlight, the one guy who brought it a hundred and seventy-five percent, Kenneth Branagh. Like the dude, like when you see Kenneth Branagh nowadays, more or less, he's kind of a straight and narrow he, he's a great actor but you think Shakespearean you think all of this and then you know a lot of people would think of him from Harry Potter from the one movie where you know he got to have a little fun but in Wild Wild West this dude Kenneth Branagh this character is insane like just over the top but it's like over the top in a nuanced way that feels so right like I can't imagine I wish I was on set just to witness him basically because it's genius. Do y'all feel the same way? Go ahead, Dan. I know you were itching to say something. I said, I I can't even reconcile this man. Like he has such a crazy filmography and his ability to like, this is a respected theater actor who is directing plays and he's known as like Shakespearean brilliant and he's just a complete psychopath in this movie and looks like he was born to play weird character roles and is having so much fun and then I was like what was the last thing I saw him in oh what are the more murder on the Orient Express where he's also playing a complete psycho role but then you go and you see him he's the villain in Tenet and he has a ridiculous accent and is like yeah. actually intimidating like that he has such a range but he doesn't seem to sing or have the joy that he has if he's not being a psychopath and what you said about the harry potter him as gilderoy lockhart and him as this character seems to be where he's having the most fun just <laughs> i'm gonna chew every piece of scenery i know why i'm here this movie's about me for me you're in my movie now <laughs> like he's just yeah. <laughs> yeah and apparently he didn't drop the accent at all like he took this very method on set and that's why i definitely want to actually I, I really would would have loved to have seen what that would have been like on set but yeah he's just he really is the, the 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 shining element, as Brian said in this this whole film. Like all the jokes that he has, like there's this one sequence that is is uh very problematic to uh, recite, but it is how nice of you to join us tonight and add color to these monochromatic proceedings. Well, when a fella comes back from the dead, I find that an occasion to stand up, be counted. 
Miss East informs me that you're expecting to see General McGrath here. Well, I knew him years ago, but I haven't seen him in a coon's age. Well, I can see where it'd be difficult for a man of your stature to keep in touch with even half the people you know. Well, perhaps the lovely Miss East will keep you from being a slave to your disappointment. Well, you know beautiful women, they encourage you one minute and cut the legs out from under you the next. Where um, Will Smith and, you know, this kind of half person, they're going back and forth and very nonchalantly, you know, <laughs> telling racial jokes like, yeah. Like not so much like they're like very passive aggressive with it and then being like a half a person and like Preston nailed it. Like, I, but I think like it's not as bad as like one would say because it's it actually like, it's funny as shit, right? Like, talk about it. Like, can you do you even do you feel comfortable saying any of it? No, no I'm not going to say any of it. Well, I could say I, I don't feel as bad saying like, uh, takes the legs up from under you and, and makes you want to stand up like that that's that's just humorous to me but yeah it, it's like i wonder what it had been like because i don't remember like what that was like uh as a nine-year-old watching it and seeing like what parents and because uh, you know we're in a different age now and so we can be like oh so because like the other day i went to go see bring it on at the draft house um they were doing like a brunch screening and it's so funny to go to it and then like you're going in there with all your like nostalgia and love and how much it just like captured the time so perfectly and the type of humor and then and then you go and watch it with today's mindset and you're like they say some things in there where it just makes you go, ooh. And it was so fun to watch that with an audience. And they also are like, ooh, but they still continue to go with it and enjoy it and love it. And that's kind of the same thing. Like you can, you can, you can watch movies like Aladdin and and th- in other films like that that are problematic today and still have a conversation with people, or you can still laugh at it. It's um I, I think it's it's harmless if you just don't take it that seriously. And this movie's not taking itself seriously at all, really. Um, so I can enjoy it and love it for what it is. It is. Like, did you like that scene, Dan? Like with the them two doing the jokes to each other? Yeah, let's yeah, get in I... trouble with your work if they happen to find it. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's one of those things where it's like, what is the who is the joke directed at? And it's the evil genius bad guy who was cut in half do you know what i mean like he's making like jokes at him he's not like at a special olympics event making these kinds of jokes <laughs> but i'm being serious like the intent and the person who it's aimed at matters and so while i don't think it would be done in these i say a movie like those jokes wouldn't be made but i just saw an, a trailer for champion starring Woody yeah so that i cannot believe was greenlit and is coming out no matter how uplifting the end message is i'm sure the jokes in that are just is it going to be like more quote woke than the ringer was since it's essentially I, the same movie, but also done by one of the Fairley brothers. But Yeah. But that's just what I mean. Like I, those jokes would not be made, but removing yourself, looking at the time and, and seeing who the jokes were directed at in a PG 13 movie with a giant mechanical spider and a guy with spider legs. I don't think they were as, line crossing as they would have yeah. been if the guy had lost like in a serious accident you know what i mean like so yeah some of them crossed the line but they were also really really funny in the moment and just showed that kenneth Branagh and will smith came to play because yeah. they had a blast doing it 
Because they hate each other. Like, yeah. the, uh, Kenneth Branagh's character, Mr. Lo- uh, Dr. Loveless, is a son of a bitch. He's a very <laughs> sadistic person. So yeah. he can say all that stuff, and that colors him as a very nasty person. And, and so he, he lives up to it. And and, 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 and and what do we want from it? Him to Like, when they're doing low blows at each other, for him to be like, I understand that you currently have a disability, and while I am not attacking that, I would also like to point out today that you, sir, are an asshole. Like you know, right? Like, that's that's how it would be done today. Yeah, it, it was a very PG thirteen like racial thing because, like, I mean, you reminded me, Preston, but like when Will Smith would say to him, like, you know, swept your legs under, cut your legs from under you, you know, um, Kenneth Branagh would say, like, well, I see you brought a lot of color to the party, and it's yeah. just like you know those like lighter you know things, yeah. you know. Yeah, he, he didn't drop the word or anything. They no, they didn't. They didn't. But I mean, this is a movie we've already said opens with a very scary scene of a man getting his head cut off. Um, a sex scene shows Selma Hayek's butt with a bunch of innuendo, and then has a fake boob grabbing, essentially competition riff off. So it doesn't shock us that at one point, um, you know, there's there's this scene in it. Like I, that's why I'm saying like. PG thirteen must have just been a different animal back then. It, yeah, it does because Ted Ted Levine, man, as General McGrath, like the way that they open up his introduce his character and he says something like that's on the same level as Sleepaway Camp with Baldies, where he's like, <laughs> "I want yep. I want horrors young and creamy," and yeah, by, I'm like, "Oh my god!" Uh, followed by him with that the earpiece that he has so he can hear better and he pours it out and like all the wax falls out. It's like this guy is disgusting. All these men, these bad guys are disgusting. And like, let's talk about Ted Levine because he's unrecognizable. Like Ted Levine is Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. He's like, the he, uh, uh, I'd fuck me. He's that scary guy. And in here he is scary, but he's like a cartoony scary, but... He's also has that, like Preston said, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up the Baldies thing because <laughs> that's what it was. I, I remember just watching it just now, you know, and him saying like, you know, well and creamy. And I was like, oh my, like when, I mean, I was 18, so I got it. But like you being nine, you might have not understood that, Preston. No, there's no way I did. I didn't get it till last night. <laughs> I didn't see I didn't see it in so long, but there's no way I was thinking that watching this movie. And that's just another another example of like what what are we doing? Like what are I feel like we're like pearl clutching like old women seeing like hearing music. Turn down that radio because we're like, how is this movie made? Like what are they doing? Who puts that line in a movie? I mean, <laughs> j- just their uh his commitment, like the bad guys, like both Kenneth Branagh and Ted Levine as the bad guys you can see like the different levels of commitment amongst the the actors like because i was just thinking like ted levine as general mcgrath like he's so sweaty and dirty looking like he legit looks like somebody (laughs) who is a soldier or general at that time while you know jim west will uh smith is so clean it looks like his clothes just came right off the rack even if he probably was in them for days. And so that just shows you like the Hollywood star treatment versus somebody who is probably a more method and committed actor and has a history of playing like these very memorable characters versus an actor who can just really carry a film and put butts in seats. It's really interesting. But yeah, that just goes to show you all (laughs) the genre mashup too that's here at play. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's a, a great way to put it because I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, you think of Will Smith when you think of this movie, but you really think of Ted Levine's character, McGrath and uh, Kenneth Branagh, because they are really in their roles where the other two are kind of, you know, the straight and narrow characters. They want to make you laugh in the theater. Right, right, right. So, oh, it's so good. And so let's talk about Kenneth Branagh's, um, uh, like, women around the movie. Because I feel like John Peters here took a, took a segment from Dolomite. Um, because in the movie Dolomite, the main character is surrounded by kung fu women who are constantly kicking ass and in wild wild west kenneth Branagh's character is surrounded by women who are many machine guns and doing his like artist enforcers basically right and one of them has like the best most on the nose name which is miss lippin reader and that's exactly <laughs> what she does in the film she's like reading lips from afar with uh, uh binoculars and yeah it's uh yeah it's a joy especially i mean the... isn't that like a james bond type of thing yes. of course it is That's yeah of roger about. moore era yes <laughs> but listen i we give a lot of credit to the people behind the scenes in these movies but after this past weekend with cocaine bear i think we need to give a lot of credit to cocaine and john peters i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to disparage the man but this guy was on something and was like wait Y'all took the y'all took the regulator off. You you unbuckled me from the from the baby carrier. I'm going nuts and I'm putting references to anything I've ever seen and anything I've ever liked in this movie. And I'm gonna make it batshit insane. And there's yeah. I have an appreciation for that. And that's so, a great and even even Stephen King. We wouldn't have got the best books if they weren't for cocaine. Correct, <laughs> correct. That's very true. And I think this is a great uh a great part to allow our audience to hear the Kevin Smith story about John Peters and Wild Wild West and uh, Kevin Smith's Superman. So without further ado, here is that story. And uh, just on the topic that you brought on comic books now, the situation, the true Hollywood story, if you will, with uh, the Superman lives and whether it was you who didn't want uh, Tim Burton to go down with it or if he just wasn't happy with what you had done with it or what your take was on for those of you who don't know because this is going back a few years now back in like 96 97 at one point i was commissioned by warner brothers to write a script for a new superman movie and how it came about i think was that somebody saw Mallrats, somebody at warner brothers some studio exec and was just like watched brody and and ts talk about the kryptonite condom and they were like this guy seems to know a lot about superman <laughs> So I got called in for, for a meeting at Warner Brothers, and um, they uh, said, there's a couple of projects that uh, you can rewrite, because at this point, the script for Chasing Amy had started to circulate, and people were like, oh, he can write after all. So they were like offering me rewrite work. So I went into Warner Brothers, and said, we have three projects we could throw your way. I said, all right, what are they? And they said, one is a, a remake of an Outer Limits episode called The Architects of Fear. The second is Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. <laughs> To which I was like, really, didn't we say all we needed to say with the first Beetlejuice? Must we go tropical? And the, uh, the third was uh, a project called Superman Reborn, and my, that's what piqued my interest. I was like, Superman? You guys are going to make another Superman movie? 
And they said, we're thinking about it. I said, can I, I, I would love to do that. And they said, well, that's a long shot. You can't, I can't give you that right here in the room. That has to go through a bunch of people because it's a big Warner Brothers franchise. So I said, well, what do I have to do? What, who's, who's fucking dick do I have to suck to get this job? <laughs> and um, thankfully he didn't say his. Um, but he said, you know what? Why don't you take the script home? We have a, a draft of it. Take it home, read it, and tell me what you think about it. So I said, all right. I read the script, and I was just like, this is this fucking terrible. This is a horrible script. I mean, it was just really, really bad. It was kind of like the Batman TV show version of a Superman movie. Very campy. So I went back to Warner Brothers two days later and sat down with the dude, and he was like, what'd you think? I said, well, it was really quite bad. And he was like, well, bad meaning good? And I said, no, bad, just fucking terrible. And he said, he's looking at me, and I'm, I'm just going on for about five minutes how bad the script is. And I was like, do you pay somebody to write this? Is this somebody's, the writer of this script, somebody's fucking cousin? Because who lets somebody write this script? Do somebody, you pay this dude? Can you get the money back? Because this is horrendous, dude, horrendous. And he was looking at me, nodding and going, all right, well, thanks for coming in. So I left, and I was driving home. I got home and I called my friend Walters back in Jersey, and he's a big comic book fan. And I was like, dude, I just went into Warner Brothers and told him their script for Superman sucked. Ah. <laughs> rebel, rebel, Jersey represent. Ah. <laughs> Fuck Hollywood. Ah. And Walters like, well, why didn't you just offer to write a better version? And I was like, ah. Because <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I said, Fuck. But it didn't matter because the next day I got a call from my agent. He was like, hey, they want to see you at Warner Brothers again. I said, really? All right. So I went back, and it was the same dude that I talked to originally, the same studio exec. And then there was another dude in the room with him. So I sat down with him, and the first guy was like, glad you came back. Do me a favor. Tell him what you told me about Superman, about the script. And I was like, um, all right. It's bad. sucks. Did your cousin write it? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Did that for about five minutes, and then they both just nodded at me quietly. And then they're like... All right, well, thanks for coming in. <laughs> so I went back home. Next day, I got another call from my agent going, they want to meet with you at Warner Brothers again. I said, all right. Because I really didn't have much to do. So I go back into the room, and it's that dude, the second dude, and now there's a third dude in the room. And they're all in the semicircle chairs, and they put me in one chair, and the first guy's like, tell the, tell, the two guys, tell this guy what you told us about the Superman script. And I just imagined it as a real kind of water cooler situation. Like one dude standing around the water cooler and somebody else was there as well getting some coffee. And he was just like, you should hear what the fucking clerks dude said about the Superman script. And the guy's like, what'd he say? And he was like, well, you know what? Fuck it. I'll just bring him in. So I told them again. And it went on like that. It went on like that for almost a whole straight week. I would go back. There'd be another person in the room. And I kept saying the same shit over and over. Finally, I got to the guy at the top, who was Lorenzo de Bonaventura. Now there's like six to eight guys sitting around a large table with Lorenzo at the one end and me at the other. And they're all like, tell him, tell Lorenzo what you told us about Superman. And so I launch into my spiel and shit. And Lorenzo's the first guy who's like, well, what would you do differently? And I said, um, well, I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, I guess you could try this, 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 and that, and that. And he's nodding and shit. And he's like, well, you know what? We're going to give you a shot at it. And I said, all right, awesome. And he goes, it's pending approval of the producer. And I said, who's the producer? And they said, John Peters. I said, um, all right, what do I got to do? They're like, you got to go meet with him. I said, okay. Now, John Peters, if you don't know, uh, he's a producer on movies. Like, he, he was an exec producer, or producer in name only on Rain Man. He was a producer on Batman. Um, he was a producer on the main event, the Barbra Streisand boxing movie. 
Which is how he got his start in the business. He used to be Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. And then one day he became a producer. Because in Hollywood, you just kind of fail upwards. So anyway, I'm going to meet John Peters. And I go to his place, and he very much... He was hardcore producer on Batman. He was there every day. It was kind of his baby from beginning to end. And when you get to his house, it kind of shows, because it's kind of like driving up to Wayne Manor. This is a big mansion through woods and shit like that, and it looks like there's a holographic cave to one side. (laughs) So you get up and shit, and they bring you in. And he shows up, and he's wearing, like, short tennis shorts and shit, and he's kind of a built dude, but he's got a perfect head of hair, like, well-coiffed or coiffed. So I come down and sit down with him. He says, they tell me you got to take on Superman. I said, I I do. He said, let me hear it. And I told him. After a while, I'm done. He's just nodding, looking at me, nodding. He goes, you know why you and me are going to do a good job on Superman? And I said, why? He's going, because you and me, we get Superman. You know why? I said, no. He said, because you and me, we're from the streets. Now, I, I grew up in suburban New Jersey. Never saw a black man until I was about 28. Like, I'm the farthest thing from the streets there are. You know, I, I grew up on a street. But not on the streets. And I'm looking at this guy going like, I'm from the suburbs, you're a hairdresser, neither of us are from the street. But I don't want to say that, because fuck it, I want the job. So I said, uh... Who would you see playing Superman? And he said, if I had to cast it right now? I said, well, yeah. And he said, Sean Penn. (laughs) And I was like, Spicoli? (laughs) Because it was an interesting choice. And he's like, yeah, did you see see Dead Man Walking? Because that was out at the time. And I said, yeah. And he's going, well, look in his eyes in that movie. He's got the eyes of a violent, caged animal, of a fucking killer. And I was like, dude, it's Superman. (laughs) He's like, I got some directives for you. If you're going to move forward on the process, some things I want you to do and don't in the script. He's going, three things. Okay. I said, all right. One, I don't want to see him in that suit. Two, I don't want to see him fly. And three, he's got to fight a giant spider in the third act. And I'm like, let's, let's go back to one. When you say you don't want him in the suit, and he's like, don't want to see him in it. Don't want it. Looks too faggy, he goes. And I was just like, no fags on the street, I take it. But I don't say that because I want the fucking job. So uh, he said, flying, flying. I don't want to see him fly. I said, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the suit and flying defines Superman. I said, don't want to see it. Don't want to see him fly. No scenes where he's flying around carrying people. Horseshit. I said, all right, all right, no flying. I said, but the giant spider intrigues me. Why, uh, why that? And he's like, do you know anything about spiders? And I said, I mean, no. And he said, well, they're the fiercest killers in the insect kingdom. (laughs) And I was like, what does that have to do with our non-flying Superman? (laughs) 
And he said, because there's going to be a scene in this movie, a scene that I want. When I saw King Kong, when King Kong's revealed, and it's a real big moment. I want that moment in this movie. I want some doors to open up, but big fucking spiders there. <laughs> so I was just like, um, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I went back to Warner Brothers and sat down with them, and they said, he, uh, we heard from him, he likes you, uh, we're going to hire you, you're going to move forward. Did he bring up the spider? I said, he did, he brought up the spider. He tell you guys about the spider? They're like, every day with the fucking spider. I said, what should I do? They're like, just do it, but try not to call it a spider. Call it, can you call it something else? And I was just like, Thanagarian snare beast? And they were like, there, go. So um, I was ready to go start writing, and then I was told I had to write an outline first. And I was just like, what do you mean, an outline? They said, yeah, don't just write the script. You have to give us an overview of the story so we can approve the story so we can go write the script, and we need you to write an outline. I said, can I include dialogue? They said, yeah, go ahead. And then dialogue's about the only thing I know how to do. So I went home and wrote 80 pages, just an 80-page outline with tons of dialogue <laughs> and very few kind of prose passages. And so I turned it in, and I, th I was in Los Angeles all this time. I wanted to go back to Jersey. I turned in, I say, I'm finished. I'm going to go back to Jersey and let me know what you guys think, and you can reach me back home. And they said, well, first off, um, this is 80 pages. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's the outline. They're like, an outline is like four pages max. <laughs> and I was just like, well, you know, I'm just overcompensating because I grew up fat. <laughs> Uh, they said, second off, you can't leave. You've got to stick around here and read John the outline. And I said, what, what do you mean, read John the outline? They said, yeah, he likes to have the outlines read to him by the writer. I said, what do I, have, fucking tuck him in when I'm done, too? So I go back up to fucking Wayne Manor. I sit down with John, and John puts me in a chair, and he's got a couch in this huge fucking living room. He lays down on the couch. And he goes, and I said, what's, what's with that? And he's like, I, just, I like to visualize the movie while it's being read to me. So I'm looking at it up here. He was building a little screen in his mind's eye. This was a screen. So I was just like, all right, here we go. And I start reading. And uh, since it's Superman, you know, you tend to use the term Superman a lot. And I didn't want to keep doing that. It gets a little boring. So being a comic book fan, I changed it up. Called him Kal-El when he was on Krypton. You know, the man of tomorrow, man of steel, shit like that. So I'm reading the first few pages when he's on Krypton when he's a baby. Because I have to redo the origin. And uh, it's Kal-El this, Kal-El that, blah, 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 blah. He's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Who, who the fuck is Kal-El? <laughs> and I was like, Kal-El is Superman. He's going, all right. Why? And I was like, that's his Kryptonian name? He goes, I'm like, Krypton's where he's from? He's like, right, 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 fucking planet, boom. All right, all right. Go. So I go back into it and shit, and I read it, and, and when I'm all done, he's like, all right, I think we got a movie here. He's going, the problem, though, you're missing some beats, some action beats. You need an action beat. Every 10 pages, something big has to happen. I said, well, what are you thinking about? He's like, well, it's just an example. Like, when you go, you have a scene where Brainiac goes to the Fortress of Solitude, looking for Superman. Superman's dead at this point. Hope I didn't spoil the movie for anybody. So Brainiac's looking for him, the Fortress of Solitude, and something should happen there. There should be a big fucking fight. I'm like, but Superman's dead at this point. He's like, I know, I know, but can't Brainiac fight something else up there? 
And I was like, well, like what? He's like, what about like Superman's guards as soldiers? And I'm like, why, why would Superman need guards? You know, he's, he's Superman. He's, and plus it's called the Fortress of Solitude. Nobody's up there. And he said, well, Jesus Christ. He's going, how about, what about, where is this? In the Antarctic? I said, yeah. He's like, what about polar bears? And I was like, polar bears? He said, yeah, have them have fight some polar bears. Brainiac shows up. He's trying to get in the fortress. Polar bears come at him, and he just fucking kills one, and one runs away. Because we don't want to piss off the PETA people. And I said, you want me to write a scene where Brainiac is razzling polar bears? And he says, yeah, you know anything about polar bears? And I said, no, I don't. He's like, polar bears are the fiercest killers in the animal kingdom. And at this point, I'm just like, this dude has way too much access to the Discovery Channel. So I get done with my, my first draft, and, and I send it in, and they like it and whatnot. They start sending it off to people. They send it off to Nick Cage, Tim Burton. During this time, we have the premiere for Chasing Amy. And I invite John, because I know this dude doesn't know anything about my work. In fact, I don't think anybody at Warner Brothers knows much about my work beyond having read the script for Chasing Amy. Because I was always afraid somebody at Warner Brothers would, would be like, we, we gave our fucking million-dollar, multi-million-dollar franchise to the Clerks guy? <laughs> like, he's going to turn in a script with fucking Clark, you know, jumping on Lois, going, how many fucking dicks did you suck? <laughs> So I figured it was fair to kind of invite the producer of the movie I was writing to see my new movie. So I said, we're having this premiere for Chasing Amy, you want to come? And he said, yeah, yeah. And he showed up and I talked to him the next day on the phone. I said, what'd you think? He was going, interesting, interesting flick, which in Hollywood means I didn't like it at all. He's going, you know what I really like though? He's going, the, the black guy, the gay black guy, I like that, I like that a lot, I liked his voice. I said, yeah, yeah, Dwight, he's very funny. And he said, that's what we need in our movie. And I was like, you want Dwight to be in the movie? I know he'd fucking be happy to do it. He said, no, we just need that voice. We need that, that character, somebody like him in our movie. Can't Brainiac have a sidekick? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And he said, give him a little robot sidekick and give him that dude's voice. I said, really? You want the, the robot to sound like a gay black man? And he said, that's what this movie needs, is a fucking, just a gay R2-D2. <laughs> and at this point, the Star Wars movie was in re-release, and it opened up that previous weekend, made like 30 million bucks and shit like that, and he had gone to see it again. So he was like, we need more shit like that in our movie. We need something, something that like, we can make toys of and shit like that, like Chewie. We need Chewie in this movie. And I was like, you want me to just fucking write Chewie into the movie? <laughs> Superman razzling Chewy, And he said, no, but just something like that. Like, maybe Brainiac has a dog, and it's a little cute dog, and we can make a toy out of it. Because that's what it's about. we got to sell some toys off this movie. So I, that's what I need in this movie. I said, I don't really know if that's going to work. He said, don't tell me it's not going to work. I, I want my Chewy." And I was like, I got your fucking Chewy right here. But I don't say that, because I like the job. So um, Tim Burton and Nick Cage sign on based on my draft. And I was kind of excited. I said, that's, that's kind of neat. You know, fucking Tim Burton, Batman, and Nick Cage, you know. Fucking Nick Cage. <laughs> but um, when Tim Burton got signed on to the project, Tim Burton 
signed a pair play deal, which essentially means no matter what happens, Tim Burton gets paid whatever his directing fee was. I think at that point it was ten million bucks, five to ten million dollars. Um, Tim Burton, once he signs the deal, turns around and says, I'm going to bring on my guys to write the script. And the Warner Brothers guys were like, well, what about the script we're developing? And he said, I don't want to use that. I want to do my own script. Presumably a version of Superman where he has scissors for hands. (laughs) (laughs) So they turn around they tell me, like, Kevin, we're kind of done. Tim wants to go another way with, with a new writer. And I was like, um, all right. You know, and I wasn't really that upset. I didn't feel, because I'd worked on it for two drafts, and I got to hang out with a really fucked up kooky dude. <laughs> a dude who I can tell stories about for the rest of my life. Um, and, like, they paid me a lot of money to do it. Like, I would have done it for free, but I didn't tell them that. But they paid me a bunch of money to do it. And it was just fun. Like, I got to work on Superman. I got incredible access into the DC archives and shit like that. And people would give me free Superman shit all the time because I was working on it. And then I got shit canned off and I started throwing Superman stuff away because who needs to be reminded? <laughs> but I was really reminded the next summer when I went to the movies and saw a movie that John Peters had produced. And it was called The Wild Wild West. (laughs) So I'm sitting in the theater watching the movie. I'm like, good lord, this is a piece of shit. (laughs) But then all of a sudden, like a giant fucking spider shows up. Okay, so that story, guys, I mean, how true is that, that Kevin Smith story? Like, John Peters, you just, I mean, the man is insane, right? Like, he had to have fully charge of this movie, right? I love it. That's what that's what makes it so <laughs> funny. Like, looking back on it, it's like, no, they just let an insane person who may or may not be fueled by some drugs based on some of the biography things that I read about Mr. Peters. But I'm just saying, like, this dude was just going for it and good for him. Like, he's just he's just as maniacal as Loveless, pretty much. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's a crazy person. True. He is a crazy person. So let's talk a little bit about the visual effects of the movie because some visual effects are just downright terrible, god awful. But then there are some visual effects, mainly I think with some of the the giant mechanical spider that look insanely good for 1999, insanely good. But other effects look just like ridiculous and you know when the this movie came out some of the reviews kind of said something like well you can see where all this crazy money because at the time in 1999 this was one of the biggest budget movies ever made mm-hmm. um and back then you can see like oh yeah you can see all this crazy visual effects practical effects um and some definitely don't hold up uh kind of when will smith is going off the carriage down like a ravine but when they show the the wide shot of that it looks like he's you know a foot off the ground and it looks very green screened yeah but then the mechanical spider is like wow this actually looks pretty good in certain shots like that looks amazing it seems like uh the animators got and graphic artists got really excited by the technology aspect of everything so just you can see like with the the tank thing that loveless has that can go on the train track at one point 
where they think the good guys are in a train. They think that they're coming up on the bad guys through this tunnel. And then they get through the tunnel. They're like, whoa, where'd they go? But it just happens to have mechanical legs where it's standing above them and they drive right under it. And then it comes back down and you get to see like all these legs like fold inside the train. I don't think anybody could have been inside that train with the amount of legs and everything. It just would have been the entire train. So, but just to see all the details that went into those little things, the, the, the practical effects of doing the motorized car, uh, motorcycle, like the motorcycle thing that they have at the beginning, near the beginning of the movie, the flying uh, thing at the end so uh, yeah seeing all those little inventions at play and through the special effects is uh, is fun to see but then yeah there will be moments where it looks like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers when you go back and watch that and you're like oh it, was, it looks so cool and I believed it back in the day and you watch it now and you're like I can see you know where it's falling apart at the seams uh, in a digital way um, but uh, yeah yeah the, some of those some of the skylines and at the very end where you think that they're, you know, on horseback riding and then you pull it out a little, blow it out a little bit. And then, yeah, it doesn't look good. So yeah, it's, but it's pretty well mixed uh, in terms of it looking bad and looking good, but the whole movie is just a complete mess that you can just forgive it for all that. Cause I'm, I'm not, I'm not grading it on the same level that I would save it private Ryan or something. Right. What do you think, Dan? I, I agree with what Preston said. I mean, I I wasn't taken aback by any of the special effects rewatching it. I some of my some of them were better than I expected. Some were a little worse than I expected. Some of obviously it's tough to compare to the time because you know Phantom Menace had come out, which looked really good in some spots and really bad in some spots. You have the yeah. Matrix of this year, which obviously broke everyone's brains as far as special effects. So it it this was a transition year in general for Hollywood trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And so I, I kind of forgive it. It's little flaws. Um, but I didn't think, I didn't think the special effects were bad to be honest with you. Okay. Yeah, I no, Barry, I think Barry was really good at shooting some things. Like there's a sequence where they scan up and down the train where I'm like, did they use a crane shot right. to like come down on the train and then go alongside it? And then, so I don't know, there, there's some magic tricks in this that kind of like you're, you're impressed in a lot of moments, but then other parts you're like, ah, well, you know, that's kind of, you know, fits some of the ridiculousness of the, the rest of the movie. So yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of, you know, it comes with ebbs and flows and you forgive it for what yeah, men, men in black looked way better and it came yeah. out what, two years earlier. So it's one of those weird, weird things. Right. It's so, right. It's so weird. I don't want to get too much in a special effects tangent, but <laughs> it's so crazy even to, to today when you watch things, I, I haven't seen Ant-Man, but I've heard all of what people have been saying about the third Ant-Man um, to be like, man, there's just like, everything is being compared to, or at least for me, Jurassic Park, where you're just like, man, this doesn't even look as good as Jurassic Park. And that was like the birth of special effects. Uh, and it's just really fascinating that still to this day, 30 years later, we're, constantly comparing films or stacking them again, measuring them against uh, Jurassic Park. I don't know well, if it's like that for you guys, but that's what I do. That, that's what happens. But I think a lot of that comes down to the care. Mm -hmm. involved. And I think, I think 90% of special effects and 90% of 
how a movie looks on screen is if you have a director and a team that is invested and actually cares about the product they're putting out as opposed to being hired guns for a job. And when yeah. you have Spielberg, you have one thing. When you have yeah. a team in Canada that's hired to do, you guys are in charge of the 97th portion of the quantum mania background shots only you know what i mean like yeah. that's how they break it up so much that i feel like everything's so segmented now that that's why stuff looks like shit because there's not a team that's like we are going to create kang's entire world in quantum mania it's six different people barely probably having communication with each other creating it and then just hodgepodging it and I think that's a bit that's probably the biggest factor in it of why things look so bad today is there's a lack of care. Yeah, they just want to get it done. That's it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's interesting to see to hear that because you know, even with the Jurassic Park technology, it was how they shot it, you know, because yeah. using practical Spielberg's using, a cheap a cheat sheet. Yeah, it's just yeah. <laughs> how how they did it. Um, oh, so good. Okay, so let's talk about Elmer Bernstein's score because Elmer Bernstein's a legend in the composer and film score person. What do y'all think about Wild Wild West score? Like, not talking about the song, yeah. which which be- is a very popular song. Will Smith put it on two of his albums. It's a banger. Um, and but it also got like a Razzie for worst song. Um, but the respect- score itself on this podcast, we don't respect the Razzies. <laughs> That's right. Right. The score. What do you think about the score of this movie? Because like westerns usually be- bring an epic score. They're some of the most memorable scores are a western from like, you know, the Magnificent Seven, the Wild Bunch, and stuff like that. What do y'all think about this one? I think it's good. I uh it's very fitting to a western. Like it sounds like uh something like pulled from Magnificent Seven or uh just any classic Western, it just seems like it came right out of that to me. Uh, it's very epic sounding. It's It has that that thrill of galloping alongside a train on a yeah. horse. And so, uh, yeah, it's very, it's very fitting. It's uh, memorable. I, I can't say that I've like listened to it or anything since <laughs> then. It's just, it fits the movie and uh, does the job, but it's not, it doesn't get drowned into the chaos of everything like a lot of marvel movies today do where you're like no oh, that wasn't a super memorable marvel score or anything it just kind of was there um i think it's a little more elevated than that yeah i i it sounds exactly like a western score it sounds exactly what you would expect which is kind of what makes it funny whenever it's it's hitting its highs and they're chasing a steampunk spider through a cornfield with like saucers around their neck it's it's fun yeah it is it is so you know i you gotta think at one point because of how this movie ends with kevin klein and will smith on the giant spider heading off into the distance and right before that lincoln said like i have another job for you y'all are secret service agents now yeah, it's like y'all are Secret Service number one and number two. Who's number one? Who's number two? And it seems like they're about to like do a franchise. And I guess because it was such a commercial flop and critical failure, uh, they didn't do anything else. But do you think like something like this movie, if you brought back the same actors, did you think like something like this could work again? You know, not maybe like change the tone, but yeah, would you like to see like a sequel? I I would because I think there's this 
this uh, want and love for movies that change kind of like Tarantino does where he changes the reality of things. Like you like the idea, like something like even like Prey. We were right after Prey came out, everybody was like, now I want to see Pre- uh, Predator in China during the Great Wall uh, and all kinds of stuff. Like everybody started having all these ideas. And I think if something like this came out today, it would be a much different movie um, tonally, as you said, Brian. But I think there would be an appetite for it. Um, I I would certainly like to see it. I like to see like what is this fictional version of this president look like or that like it's just kind of fun to see like what was going on during like what was going on in between the the lines in the history books and that's always like a fun fascinating idea and then when you throw some movie stars in there and some comedy it's it's a good mix for me at least I, i would think so what about you dan my only concern is we'd be looking at like a Zoolander 2 or yeah. an Anchorman 2 or, you know, like these movies that come back after such a long time that the only way it would work, I would love to do it. If everyone was game and they came back, the age they are willing to kind of be humble about it. Like if Will Smith came into it and was like, it's Kevin Klein and I again, we're partners in this movie. I'm going to make it fun. Um, they get maybe a young, an up and comer to play like the villain in this one and and they went and they go for it to make it fun and recognize what the charms of the first one were. I'm just not sure the, the ego of all the stars and where they're at now and the way the Hollywood works that that would ever happen. But yeah, I don't know, but like it worked with the matrix. I think it worked with top gun. It worked with um, bad boys three. Like, I think those, movies like all those are all those are all sequels that came very far after their yeah but were much more successful and right, highly regarded right. films and, and, and they were they were made top gun notwithstanding they, they the movies were made but i mean was bad boys forever super successful in the end i mean i mean it was the number one grossing movie of that year i mean granted it was the covid year it was murdered by covid yeah it's (laughs) it's a weird it's a weird thing to do yeah i think it could work if everyone understood what their role was and i just i just don't know if that would happen in today's hollywood machine yeah well like if you look at uh spider-man no way home Mm-hmm. everybody has like their their favorite spider-man and like there's problems within like everything but they're like you said i think if they just went in it went into it with like accepting all parts right and leaning into the most successful ones it, it could it could work but nobody yeah has that that headspace today to be able to pull that off and a lot of these actors are pretty old i don't know i can't see kevin Klein, he he would be more like Batman Forever, kind of Bruce Wayne, just kind of doing things behind the scenes and not so much like he would have like a, a son, Mr. Gadget or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it would be interesting. I guess it'd be like the if they made it, it would be almost leading into the 1900s at, at that point. Um, so because that, Lincoln it, it was, was 1865, and so yeah, maybe I mean well, they can... he, it's Grant. He's playing President Grant. Oh, uh, Grant, so, yeah, yeah. Because Lincoln at that point had already been assassinated, right? So now it's it's it was President. By the way, I love that sequence when because Kevin Klein, it, it's funny because he's playing both parts, and even when the movie is like 
pulling the rug from under you to be like, oh, that wasn't Grant all along. Um, you get to see this fun little, because that's what really sets up Kevin Klein's character with all his inventions and his big ideas and how ambitious he is and how committed he is to all the parts that he plays because he's kind of like this uh, master of disguise. Uh, sorry, Dana Carvey, but the like put, putting <laughs> the knife in your belly to like get rid of the gut when he's uh he's been found out and he's doing it in front of the president the president's like oh my god like he's just pulling breaking me down analyzing me in this way that i want to be seen and th that's a, a little moment that was really interesting and and, and funny to me so i i like that kevin klein and barry still found a way to actually sprinkle some good comedy in in there uh outside yeah. of just these uh big reactions to things that uh probably are more uh cheap like not cheap well i guess they are kind of cheap laughs but like they're they're the low-hanging fruit moments um so but it, it does find a pretty good balance of that i agree i agree i think it does um so is is there anything else do you have anything else you want to bring up preston for this yeah i want to bring up um something like a, a big head scratching moment to me where they're on the spider and then there's this return of the jedi moment with loveless when he drops will smith's jim west down like one level and he's in the belly of the spider at this point as they're walking around and he like fights these handicapped people like so hey there's a good quality to, to loveless he's He's uh, providing jobs for those who are missing limbs. They may be from the Confederate Army and be sadistic sons of bitches, but he's giving them jobs. But uh, that's, that's, that's uh, my uh, main point here. The main point is that there's a sequence where um, Will Smith's Jim West is fighting all these henchmen, so to speak, in the in the belly of the beast and. Uh, you get to the final one that's this really tall, like just purely a tin man at this point. Um, how he's alive, I don't know. And this is kind of funny and mysterious. But there's a point where it's like part of Jim West's plan to back up to the ledge. And then he gets gets the the bad guy to lift up this thing and he short circuits and I, I don't know if it's like because is it a short circuit joke I don't know because of the writers but it just doesn't make any sense to me like that build up there wasn't like some logical moment where it like passed through like a magnetic thing that caused it to short circuit it's just like chance of luck how did Jim West know that that was going to happen so that moment like I was just like so much build up and stuff is going on that's a battle sequence and that part didn't make any sense to me that that I, happened. I had a, a head scratching moment like that was when they had their neck devices on their magnetic neck devices on and yeah. in order to escape the discs to chop their heads off, they just grab me. We're going to jump off this cliff. We don't know where it's going to go. You know, and it's like, wait, are they jumping to their death? Like either way. Yeah. And, but they fall he into like, the, yeah. 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 So I was like, well, 
I didn't, there wasn't like a line that's like, down there is supposed to be a river, we'll survive, you know? It's just like, yeah. we're going to jump. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, yeah. I think time. I think those are the reshoots because there, there was some massive reshoots for this. And that's probably like, maybe they had something else go on there. I mean, it's a good idea of them like running, to, but it didn't have to be over a cliff. They could have been just running towards each other and then duck. And yeah. then they would have hit, like it would have been fine. Uh, but it's just, it's just, it's like eye candy in a way. Like it's just a different environment to be in. So I guess them dropping into this goop and then him having, and then sneezing mm-hmm. on him to do have this Jurassic park moment. I don't, I don't know. Um, so I guess it, <laughs> it, they're like visual gags, I guess, or just like hoping that people don't think too much about it. It's because really this movie has as much logic as like a fast and furious movie. Yeah. Absurd. Absurd is the word. Not enough family. <laughs> not, not enough family. Yeah. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a, even with those absurd elements, the movie has like this charm. You, you want to be with these two characters. And even though Kenneth Branagh is such an asshole in this movie, you just, you, I like the guy. Cause he's, he's really selling it. He's like the ultimate heel, but he's so funny at it, you know? Yeah. It's it's a fun movie. I have no idea why it's ranked so low. I, I really don't. I mean, well, I, I don't think know. It, it could be just time. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know, like past 25 years or so, we've just grown to like, because right now as a critic on my bloody podcast, we, uh, the other podcast that Brian and I do, we watch a bunch of like ridiculous horror movies and 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 same thing that's kind of what we do here we're we're looking at movies that have been uh overlooked or not just they they didn't accept them in the way uh that they they didn't recognize the genius in in some of this uh ash that we have here yeah. um so uh yeah i think i think maybe it's just like the past 30 or 25 years that have gone by we've we've had some time with it i don't i try to think about it with like movies today that are just like bad um uh, but i don't know like morbius has been torn apart but i still kind of like that movie um so uh it's morbid time maybe, yeah yeah so maybe i have that mindset to still kind of recognize movies that are bad today that can still be enjoyable it's like the, uh, rotten tomatoes needs to add a button where it's like yeah, if I'm being a real critic here and I'm put pulling out my red pen, I'm going to give it a rotten review, but I can say it's yeah. a watchable rotten movie. Yes. Some right. of my favorite movies are bad movies. Yeah, and like to say this is a bad movie, like there's so many great things about it on every level. I mean, I think I think at the time I'm going to go back 1999, it's the time and place. Like yeah. I think people were on that precipice of we need darker films we need to be more serious like we've seen so many silly things in the past like let's do like the star trek in a darkness there was a you know a little while there where everything was in a darkness and like we want the more serious movies to come out and then here it starts out that way and then it goes full looney tunes and i think people were just really this is so dumb and silly but which which is true yeah no, it is true. That's, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. But I think maybe now we're in 2023 
have we seen so many movies that try to do dark and serious? We want something like this now again. Is it like just a cycle? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I agree. I don't know if it's a cycle because I don't think twenty years from now we three blind mice are gonna get on a podcast and be like, you know what? <laughs> Quantum Mania was really underrated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't I, I think we're just gonna be like, no, that's a flawed cog in the wheel of a machine that is never gonna stop moving. Whereas these older movies were that we're looking at, these were one offs. If they got a sequel, yeah. great. But Men in Black was made to be Men in Black. I don't care what it was based on. They were just like, let's make this one movie. Wild Wild West, sure, it was based on a TV show, but they weren't setting out. Obviously, there's a little stinger before the credits roll where they could roll into a sequel, but the movie wasn't setting up the next movie. It was just like, we solved this adventure. and We ride off in the sunset. We ride off into the sunset and can meet you at any point. Whereas now it's like, Okay, this Marvel movie ended. Can't wait for the trailer for the next Marvel movie, but that will come after I watch two post-credit scenes to set up the next, you know, like it's all mediocre cogs in the wheel, whereas these yeah. movies were big swings that may have missed at the time, but you kind of respect what they were going for um yeah. looking at them now. And it's the same thing with um and I'm not just picking on Marvel. I mean the same thing we saw what happened with the DC movies. Like they fell yeah. apart because they were like we need to chase this shared universe instead of just make one good movie and then focus on it, you know? So we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we will see what happens. I mean, you hope, said I'm it hope. perfectly. Yeah. You said it perfectly. There's a little hostility in that voice with MCU. I love it. We're, we're just exhausted too. That's what yeah. I mean. I'm tired and I'm, and I'm very excited. Like the, the greatest thing I know this is completely gone off the thing, but the, the happiest I've ever been listening to new movie news besides like dumb movies. I'm excited coming out is when James Gunn was like, we're going to focus on, writing good scripts so that yeah. we have good movies first and i was like no shit like let's do that yeah. like who like let's do it i want more people to do that and that's what i think these movies tried to do it and if they miss they miss but i want them i want the swings to come back yeah, yeah. So swing away meryl swing away that's yeah. what I like. <laughs> uh oh man wild wild west I, I must tell you so did they release this in 4k yet or is it just still a blu-ray mm-hmm. No, I think it's just a Blu-ray. They they have a VHS transfer. <laughs> yeah, here's I'm, my VHS. There, yeah, of course you do have it. I love it. Um, yeah, I, you know, this movie you can't find it anywhere to stream for free. But yeah. I mean, it is available for rent. It is available to purchase on any platform. Hey. Spend the $3 to revisit this, in my opinion. Like, there's a lot of great things. A lot of good laughs, I think, are to have. And to see the things at the time. And even, like, characters that are very side characters that only get, don't have lines, but they are seen in the background or they're closed up on. They're recognizable. Like, you're like, wait, that's that guy from this movie. Like, there's so many people involved in this. Like, like Coleman that we were talking about. Yeah. Emmett Walsh, like... I know he is part of, like he's like the audience surrogate a little bit with that sequence when they're they're touching the fake boobs but like he even has a <laughs> moment later when he's like on the on the talkie and then they're like hey stop the train uh and that 
uh, what's her name? Uh, Selma Hayek's character is like half naked. He's like, we're not going to drop her off half naked. So yeah, there's there. It's got a little bit of, uh, so there's a consistency here with these little moments we were talking about with rookie of the year, these little moments with uh, characters that just kind of are very fleeting, but they, they make their stamp. They make their mark. No, oh, I miss that. I miss that. I like that. So yes, I, my, my personal it's a recommendation yes it's fun right. to see this movie yeah. again because Never back then it. i didn't enjoy it really and now i i actually enjoyed it it's like that's what the podcast is all about yeah please change your letterbox rating because i put my i think you put it as one and right so from i don't but i couldn't see like when you actually put that there but uh yeah i, I put like three stars or something i was like yeah it's a soft three stars like it's a three star yeah that's that's about where it is and you know what i is why i think this podcast this particular podcast not to be biased or anything but (laughs) um with fear and loathing and cinema i think we are doing like the lord's work in sort of a way because i think it is vital and it should be a must that everybody and every critic revisit movies years later because your taste changed you might like it more you might find something that when you first saw it you didn't see before and like this movie is perfect for that yeah 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 it's good it's good so yes fear and loathing in cinema podcast thank you for listening uh i'm brian kluger and you have Dan Moran over there. He's an amazing dude. He's he's courtside right now for this <laughs> for this movie. Uh, you got Press and Barta, the man, the myth, the legend of FreshFiction.tv and the Denton Record Chronicle. Read his reviews, see his interviews on YouTube and those respective outlets. He's Blu-ray Dad on Instagram and Press and Barta on Twitter. I'm Brian Kluger, HighDefDigest.com. Visit me there. YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Brian Kluger. Dan Moran, we've got to make you an Instagram and Twitter handle that you'll use. <laughs> we'll we'll run it for you. It's, we'll just pretend that it's you. You'll yes. just have me saying a bunch of stuff like what Kenneth Branagh says in this movie and get me in trouble. It's, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Try to get you canceled. Uh, oh, it's so good. All right. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another great episode. Thank you for listening as always.